You're listening to Sacks in the Basement, a production of the Broadcast Basement Limited, where every show is 30 minutes of good and comes from a basement bar on the south side of Chicago. Pull up a stool, pour a cold one, and join us right now for Sacks in the Basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always at SacksInTheBasement.com. A special post-trade deadline episode of Socks in the Basement. That's why we held it for an extra 24 hours. And uh, also, Ed is uh, calling in from parts unknown on this broadcast. Well, I mean, I, I know where I am. I'm, I'm, I'm in Michigan. Yeah, but parts unknown sounds cooler, so we're going to go with that. Okay, well, can we just go Cosmic <laughs> Wasteland then? Sure, we'll call it that. That's fine. Okay, I'm, I'm calling from the Cosmic Wasteland list. <laughs> This episode of Socks in the Basement and every episode of Socks in the Basement brought to you proudly by Cork and Carey at the park in the shadow of the ballpark at 33rd in Princeton. You heard the ad at the beginning of the show. An amazing bar, an incredible selection. Uh, every time I'm there, I, I grab myself a, a Hailstorm craft beer there. They have a lot of local craft breweries right there on tap. They also have the familiar favorites. They got the full bar behind there. They got a great staff and they got incredible food. There's no reason to to fight and claw and search for what you're looking for inside the ballpark when you can just kind of get it together beforehand with a little relaxing pregame with a, with a wait staff and a great price and then go over you do the game you come back you commiserate afterwards with White Sox fans bring the whole family over beforehand 33rd in Princeton see more at corkandcarry.com I had a friend text me after Jake Berger was traded and said it's going to be 30 minutes of Chris screaming into his microphone <laughs> Yeah, but he's wrong about that, Ed. Look, I like Jake Berger, and and we're an independent podcast. And the fact that he made himself available to us and that his wife was on the show a couple times as well, and they opened up about their lives off the diamond and what it was like for him, you know, getting through his injuries and working his way up and playing for the White Sox. And you can kind of you can kind of feel the struggle, like her commenting basically that they never felt safe. Like at any moment, the Sox may move on from them, send him back down to the minors dare I say, trade him away at the deadline? Because let's be honest, Yoan Moncada is going to make $25 million next year, and he's nowhere near that worth. And Jake Berger's out there, and sure, his average is low, but the guy's going to hit 40 bombs. And he plays with heart. And White Sox fans had fallen in love with him. And it makes Rick Hahn look bad to have a guy like Jake Berger on the field and still be forcing a Yoan Moncada into the lineup. It's a deal that I joked they were going to make. Get him off of the team because it makes the front office look bad. And they did it right at the end. They moved on from him. And they got a great prospect. They got an incredible prospect in this pitcher that they got back from the Marlins. He's going to be great in two years, maybe three, on the south side if they develop him properly and they finish off things, which they've proven they are not very good at. They got a great trade out of the whole thing. But the the problem that I have is that it always felt like they didn't want this guy around. He fought his way onto the team. He played with incredible heart. He changed the minds of guys like Guillen in the pregame and postgame who used to wax poetic about how much Yuan Moncada cares to then all of a sudden saying, Yuan Moncada should be moved to second because Berger's my guy right? He changed minds around the building. And he basically like, if that guy, if that guy went two for four with a home run, but had a bad at bat, he was said to be the guy that would still hang out for a couple hours in the cages. He wanted it. And I heard the White Sox over the last week, talk about the idea of changing the culture in the clubhouse. And the only position player they moved is probably the guy that had the most heart. Now I'm not saying he was the best player on the team, 
And I don't know if this is his greatest value or he's just starting, but there's a good chance he was just starting. And you had control of him through 2028, and there were plenty of other guys that had demonstrated a lack of heart on this team. There were plenty of other guys who had struggled far worse than him for far longer, and he was contributing to this team and was working hard. I found him to be the most shocking name to move on if you're talking about changing culture. Just as much as I thought that it was weird to talk about changing culture and changing the way that the roster was constructed and changing the clubhouse, and all you really did was get rid of a bunch of expiring contracts that were pitchers and one position player who probably connected with your fan base on a personal level more than pretty much all of the rest of them out there and worked his butt off and won over people that didn't even want to give him a chance to go out there and be an everyday player for the White Sox. I'm telling you right now, that kind of heart, you can't qualify that in a scouting report. That's what I have against the trade. I'm not saying it's a bad trade. I'm not saying it's a bad return. But you've got a lot of problems on this team. Jake Berger was not one of your problems. And he's the guy you moved. And there's a lot of guys still on this roster that you probably should have moved. Well, and, and the problem there, too, is is one of roster construction, right? And then I know there was a logjam of guys with sort of defensive holes. Berger's one of those guys. They were playing him at second. He's not the best third baseman. He's probably a first baseman DH type like they've got over and over again ad nauseum. Yohan Moncada, you're not going to do anything in the offseason with him. Maybe you can do something with Tim Anderson. Maybe you keep him and, and hang on to him. Yasmani Grandal, what's the point, right? So you've got a lot of things going here where the team going forward is just going to be missing a piece of itself. And that piece is going to be Jake Berger and his heart. And he was very liked in the clubhouse from what you can tell. And he was obviously a fan favorite. And he's also the only guy on the team besides Luis Robert, who's capable of hitting the ball out of the ballpark. So once again, what you've done is Rick Hahn seems to do this a lot where he takes something that is a weakness and somehow manages to make it weaker in building his roster. When we were going through the rebuild, he focused so heavily on position players. Look at all the guys, Vaughn and Robert and Jimenez, and to a lesser extent, Jake Berger, Nick Mandrigal once upon a time. You know, you have these position players. That's all we talked about. Oscar Colas, these position players. We have never, outside of Michael Kopech and Dylan Cease, really spoken much about pitchers. And once, the G, once Lucas Giolito made it to, to the team, it was pretty much, we'll wait until Dylan Cease gets here. Well, once Dylan Cease got here, it was, well, wait until Kopech heals. Because remember, he got here, and then he, he hurt himself. You don't – now he's overcorrecting, right? Every one of these trades, he brings back two catchers. Obviously, they're going to move on from Yasmani Grandal. But he brings back pitchers, right? He's trying to reload the rotation because he realizes he doesn't have anybody coming up next year. So his idea of contending in 2024 is take a bunch of double-A pitchers and hope that three of them stick in the rotation with Kopech and Cease. And either the guy that they got for Berger might be that guy. But now you're going to have a team that doesn't hit the ball out of the ballpark. They're going to be a bunch of singles and doubles hitters. Yeah, but wait, hold on a second, Ed. Hold on. They're going to go out and spend money. That's what that's what Bob Nightingale is trying to push. He's been pushing the White Sox narrative about they're going to contend. And he was all over this stuff at the deadline. And he was spinning everything the way the front office wanted it spun because he gets his information directly from them. And you cannot convince me otherwise. He's one of their guys. And he's sitting there pushing this narrative over the last couple of days during this deadline. Well, we've cleared all this money. So expect them to go out there and spend money. They're not going to spend any more money. 
All of that money is going to get eaten up by the raises. It's going to get eaten up by the raises of Moncada going from $17 million to $25. Jimenez gets a big raise. Robert gets a big raise. There's all kinds of guys getting big raises. The money that went off the team, if you add it all up and you put it up against the money that it's going to increase salary-wise, pretty much cancels each other out. And I don't understand why Osmani Grandal is on the team today. It doesn't make any sense to me. You, you have a bunch of young catchers that you brought in. They should be getting playing time right now. He shouldn't be getting any playing time right now. And you would have traded. You should have traded him for a bag of balls. If if the Rangers would have said we're going to give you a couple guys that are sitting outside our top thirty, but they got promise, I would have traded Yasmani Grandal for it. Whatever their asking price was for Grandal to not take the best offer before they got to the deadline is a mistake. And that's the thing. There should have been a couple of guys that they went right up to the deadline and then they said, all right, this is the best offer. We're getting this guy off the team because there's no purpose for having him on the team anymore. And he was one of them. And so, you know, you can sit there and you can, there are going to be the the Han bots are out there and they're rattling their sabers and like, look at Rick Han, he always wins these trades. Well, you know what? I can go on the website and I can look at the MLB top 100 prospect list and I can go on a draft simulator page and I can weigh players and every single one of those things will tell me what a guy is worth. And then I can sit there and wait for somebody to call up and say, we want this player and I can make demands. And when they turn me down, I'm holding firm. Like, trust me, he holds firm. And then when they come up with my price, I trade them. That isn't genius. That's just you had things that people wanted. And you created this problem that you're having a sell-off. So do not celebrate for one moment Rick Hahn in the front office. Do not celebrate for one moment Kenny Williams in the front office. Because they shouldn't even have been doing this at the deadline if they knew how to do their jobs properly. Nothing changes. Fire everybody. You got value, so at least they didn't screw it up anymore. But they all should be gone in the offseason, period. All right, maybe I got a little yelly there. Maybe I yelled for a little bit. I'm done, though. We got a great guest coming up here. First, let me tell you all about Hyatt Home Medical Equipment. Whether it's mom and dad, grandma and grandpa, even you, nobody wants to go into assisted living. Switch to a new age of life gracefully with Hyatt Home Medical Equipment. You want to get around on your own and live independently. They're going to help. Stair lifts, ramps, grab bars, lift chairs, even bathroom remodeling. They're going to work with the insurance. They have 0% financing for qualified individuals. And if you mention socks in the basement, you get an additional discount. Those of you using CPAP machines, unhappy with your vendor, switch now. They have testing rooms. You can try out the latest. They also have the latest in continuous glucose monitors. Learn all about what they do at hhme.com or stop in and see them at 3518 West 95th Street in Evergreen Park. Joining me right now, I have Elijah Evans. He's with Just Baseball and also has been doing some great prospect work for future Sox, and he's on with Sox in the basement right now. How are you, Elijah? I'm doing good. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm excited for hopefully a deadline today, um, and I'm happy about what has been done so far. So let's say that they had their offers, and they're taking the best things that were available from teams that were looking for pitching, because you saw a lot of trades for starting pitching before the trade deadline hit. What did you think of the return? Why don't we start off with the one for Lucas Giolito and Reynaldo Lopez? Yeah, um, I was really happy with that return, to be honest. And I know there's been some mixed opinions um, on social media from what I've been reading. And I think people tend to read into the immediate stats of what we've seen this year from both of these players. You know, Edgar Caro, especially, we've seen a lot of regression in his numbers this year. 
But when you look a little bit further, this is a guy who's a switch hitting catcher. He's a young 20 years old. He was one of the best players in the entire minor leagues last year at 19. And, you know, he was pushed a little bit. The Angels are in a situation right now where they're trying to win, and they forced him to double A. They had him jump over single A. He, you know, he played in single A last year, skipped high A, went up to double A. And he's still been an average hitter this year with a really advanced approach, especially at 20 years old. This is a guy who I think has a legitimate shot to be the future catcher of the White Sox for a long time. I know there's a little bit of questions about his defense. It's going to take him some time. But again, 20 years old, double A, this is a huge gap for the White Sox. I, I understand this year is a little bit more troublesome, but like for two rental pitchers, he's a really, really good get and about as good as it's going to get. He's a solid prospect. I just worry about them rushing him because you mentioned the difference between his single A and double A and how the Angels rushed him up there. I mean, the guy was hitting in the 300s with an OPS of almost almost 1,000. He was, he was well over the 950 mark, if I remember looking at the back of his baseball card. And, and, and then this year, we're talking about a guy with a 700 OPS who's hitting in the lower 200s, and he's still trying to figure it out in double A. I saw suggestions from uh, James Fox, also with Future Sox, saying the White Sox really should put him back in single A to finish this season, get him right, and not rush him. But then I see Rick Hahn saying, these are players that are going to impact us as soon as 2024, and that just seems unrealistic. Yeah, I don't think Caro's 2024. I think that would be foolish of the organization. No reality. Um, again, 20 years old and a catcher and, and raw. I mean, catching takes a lot of time to develop. And his bat is getting there. And I, even though you say, you know, his OPS isn't 700, but he's walked more than he's struck out this year, which is crazy for a guy of that age. So he has still above average WRC plus throughout this year and some other numbers. Um, so I think soon, but not 2024. And even if he, I'm fine with him being in double A right now, but I want that to be a situation where you're really letting him work there. You're not even considering bumping him at any time soon. Next year, he should be double A regardless. Um, I think 2025 is possible. I think next year would be a little too quick. Kai Bush, who's the other guy in this trade, he's a little bit more more potential impact next year. I still think you don't want to rush him. Um, I mean, this team, as much as they say they might be, the team is not going to be a legit contender in 2024. So I would much rather see some of these new additions really take their time in double A and wherever else it might be to, to acclimate themselves to the organization and to develop further before we even try to push them. And then look at, you know, 2025 is a time where these guys could make a big impact. Let's talk about a guy who could be the starting catcher next year. I mean, I think there's a possibility. This kid from Houston that the White Sox went and picked up has already had some at-bats at the major league level. Looks like he's figured AAA out. You're going to have to be patient with him, but I want to get him here before this season's even over, and that's the return for Kendall Graveman. Tell me about him. Yeah, I like Corey Lee. Um, you know, he's had a little bit of a down year, and I think there's a few, like you said, there's a few question marks with his makeup, but this is a team that hasn't had catching depth for a long time. And this is a guy who is young. He was a top prospect in Houston system about two years ago, not long ago. And he still has the ability to be a major league catcher and be a good one. And when you compare him to what we have right now with Yasmani Grandal, who's a free agent at the end of the year, so whether he gets traded or DFA'd or whatever happens, he's not going to be around next year. And then Sebi Zavala, who we've continued to give chances to and really hasn't showed much. So I, I look at Corley, like you said, as a guy who should get chance at everyday reps next year. And somebody that could be an impact bat for the White Sox. He showed a lot of power last year. It's ticked down a little this year, um, but he's also dealt with some injuries this season. So I think, you know, the White Sox bought at a time where his value was a little lower than it may have been a year ago. 
And meanwhile, the Astros, you know, they're they're contending right now. They don't plan on having him on their roster for the playoffs. So for for them, it makes sense to add a guy like Graveman, who they're familiar with. Uh, but for the White Sox, Lee has a chance to become a quality catcher. And even if you know, long term, if he's the backup to Edgar Caro when he eventually comes up, that's even that is a good situation in a return for a relief pitcher that is not part of our future, most likely. Um, so I think Lee is a guy that you know we should we should see. I hope later this year. Um, and then going into next year, I think he'll have a real chance to be our primary catcher. Our guest today and every guest that appears on Socks in the Basement brought to you proudly by the village of Lamont. Want to experience the downtown with real history, great eats and drinks, and green spaces filled with adventure. Visit the village of Lamont. Shop, dine, drink, explore, and see what's going on this weekend and beyond at LamontDowntown.com. So now the deal with the Dodgers, I felt like the Sox got a return that I didn't expect for Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly. These guys haven't been just superstar level. You're going to get something big for them. I felt like the starting pitcher that the Sox pulled in that deal was was a good pickup. And again, let's let's be honest. It's paint by numbers trades by Rick Hahn. I feel like the other teams almost dictate the value to him, and then he just takes the best possible deal that's on paper. So he gets a a starting pitcher, and he gets a relief pitcher. The relief pitcher looks like he could be in the majors realistically and part of the bullpen for next year. The starting pitcher probably midway through the year. Am I right or wrong on that? Yeah, I think you're right on that. I I pulled right up on uh, Nick Mastrini on Twitter when the trade originally broke, but I I love this return. I did not expect, like you said, for for Lance Lynn and Joe Kelly, they both have experience and the Dodgers liked their vets and they've been around and I get that, but this is a lot more than I expected for either of those guys, given their contract situation, um, that they're just not great at this point in their career. I mean, I think they both have the chance to be solid, but Mastrini's a guy that I, I could see him being our middle of our rotation guy for the White Sox by the end of next year. He's got excellent stuff. His fastball is one of the best in double A this year. He's got a lot of right on it. He's been working on the change up that he's pairing really well with his off speed with his breaking pitches. Um, so this is a guy that has four pitches. He has had a little bit of command issues at times, um, but he's got good whiff numbers. He's got a really solid fastball, you know, four pitches that you can rely upon, which is what you look for when you're looking at starter prospects, especially. I mean, it's there's a lot of prospects these days where you see you know, two pitches they're working with, and that's that's an instant reliever risk. Estrini is a he's a starter. I'm I'm pretty confident he's a starter at the next level, and it's just going to be about continuing to work with him and give him his time. But with the amount of pitching the White Sox have in terms of depth, obviously we're trading away from a lot of the starting pitching right now. Um, I think he's going to be in the rotation by some time next season. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when next year, but I, I think he's a really really good get for this situation and and he's a Dodgers pitcher and the Dodgers are excellent developing pitchers and we're getting him at a point where he's already further in his development which gives the White Sox less room to mess up in any way which in all honesty you know we we get worried about because that's happened with a lot of top prospects in recent years and Mistrini is a guy who I think is already kind of almost ready and then you look on the other side of Jordan Leisure uh, you mentioned He's ready soon. The Sox bumped him to AAA. He's been in AA with Dodgers, um, but they put him straight to Charlotte. And I think he, maybe even later this year, honestly, his strikeout numbers out of the bullpen are phenomenal. He's got a really good three-pitch mix. Um, his fastball gets up there. It gets really good strikeout numbers. So I think he's a guy that, you know, should be a bullpen piece for the White Sox next year and is not obviously as high upside as Mastrini, but is a guy who could be one of the more reliable relief options as soon as next year. Yeah, and Nestrini, again, to me, he looks like a guy 
that you'll see him, but these guys don't walk right in and they just start dominating, right? So that 2024, far less likely as a competitive year with any of these acquisitions compared to 2025 when you, when I do agree that you got a guy here. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, he's already got four pitches. One of the biggest problems with White Sox pitching development is they got guys that they're bringing to the majors or are still working on their third sometimes. And this guy seems to have an arsenal. I don't know how good he is on his fourth pitch, but at least he's he's he seems more developed because he came from the Dodgers organization. You look at like MLB Pipeline. Edgar Caro ends up in the two spot now for the Sox. Nick Nestrini's in the four spot. Kai Bush ended up in the six spot. Essentially, they went from a bottom of the of the entirety of major league and farm systems so probably middle of the majors with these deals but again it's an easy thing to do when you're trading away big money talent that other teams want this is something i think anybody uh, you and i could have sat down and made trades similar to this the system is getting better i i think caro is realistically three in the system i think noah schultz is going to be a top 30 to 40 prospect in all of baseball sooner than later um, and I think Nestrini is probably right around that four or five range in the system. So the system has gotten a lot better. All right. Elijah Evans, you can check him out on Future Sacks uh, and also uh, check out Just Baseball. And he had a good article on the Dylan Cease thing. I felt like that was a move the Sacks should have made. And I, I talked with James Fox over at Future Sacks about that. I kept saying on this show, you re-sign the Lucas Giolito and you move the Dylan Cease because you, you, you can't just let go of everybody. And at some point, you got to spend the money on something when it comes to your pitching staff. Instead, we spend a lot of our money on, I don't know, third baseman that hit about 200, uh, hit about five home runs a year and play slightly above average defense. But, but that guy gets as many chances as possible, you know? No, it's yeah, you're, you're not wrong. It's tough. The money spending and the way that the team is allocated hasn't been great. But at the same time, you just got to keep got to keep trying. And there's only for, from my perspective, there's only so much I can do to control the poor decision making. And I have to look at it from the perspective of like we did get really good value this week. So that is a positive. Hailstorm Brewing Company is the official brewery of socks in the basement. They have a scratch kitchen now. Open 11 a.m. for lunch Tuesday through Sunday. The smoked wings are spectacular. I was just out there having lunch and a beer with a couple of Sox fans last week. One of the guys at the table was like, you're always talking about the wings. I'm getting the wings. I actually went light. The Arctic Ale Turkey Wrap. Like you can't eat pub food every day. I'm watching my figure. And normally I'm worried when I get something like a turkey wrap. I'm like, this is going to be plain. The ale aioli, the dried cranberry, all the fixins made it so good. One of my buddies who had never been there loved the Oaks, the Imperial Brown Ale. It's a nine percenter. I was drinking the multi-ball madness that tastes like it's heavy, but it's only 5.2%. Located in Tinley Park at 8060 186th Street, right off of 80th Avenue. See more at hailstormbrewing.com. Our guest said what I said at the beginning of the show. They were good moves. It's just you had to make them. That's why the people in charge shouldn't be there anymore. You are now seeing what their starting rotation is going to be in a couple of years because it's going to be Cease and Kai Bush and Jake Eater and uh, Nick Mestrini. And, and you're going to see, you know, even Michael Kopech maybe stole the rotation. But I think what you're really going to look at and what you're really going to see here is we're going to see next year a team that is struggling to field a complete team. We're going to see in 2025 uh, the next wave come up and still struggle to figure out where to put all these guys, right? 
Because it's going to be, what, what do you do with Colson Montgomery when he comes up? Is Colson Montgomery going to be a power hitter? Is he going to be able to hold down a corner infield spot with his bat, or is he a middle infielder guy? Well, that, that's what they're doing, though, right? I mean, they're going to tell you that you're contending in 24, but you're really looking at 25. In 25, Montgomery is here, okay? And they won't pick up the Anderson option. In 25, you could pay $5 million before the season starts for Yoan Moncada to go away. And so you'll free up a lot of money. And you're going to have guys advance. They're, they, they're going to sell you on 24 because they need to sell tickets. But in reality, every move suggests that they're aiming for 25 and beyond. And this is a miniature rebuild. That's what this is. They, they don't want to call it a rebuild because they got to sell tickets and they know that you hate them. And they know that logically, if it's another rebuild, they should be fired. So they're going to call it whatever they want to call it. But that's really what's going on here. Because these prospects and what's in the system now all point at a really nice crop of players showing up in the back half of 24 and gearing up for 25 in the offseason with a lot of money coming off the books and still having some of your core guys and having a young pitching staff where you can go add one pitcher with some of the money if somebody doesn't work out and you can go add a position player and you can add some thump. Like, I get what they're doing. I just don't think these guys can execute it and somebody else should be doing it. But lying about 24 is going to be the thing now. They're going to lie about 24 being something and don't buy it because nothing in what they did suggests to you that it's going to be much different next season. I was thinking about Rick Hahn and I was thinking about how he makes trades. And I can only equate Rick Hahn to fantasy sports at this point. He really does feel like a fantasy GM. Doesn't right, he? doesn't he? Like fantasy football, fantasy baseball. I mean, a lot of people play football. I play baseball because I'm a baseball nerd. I play football too. But I mean, it's the same in every league, right? You have all kinds of owners. What Rick Hahn is, is he's the guy who when he wants to make a trade because something's not working on his team, he lists a bunch of players on a trade block and then clicks a bunch of positions that he needs and then waits for somebody to make an offer. And generally, when you go to that guy, you go, okay, this is what I think you need on your team, and you offer something to him, and then he either takes it, or he sends you something ridiculous back as a counteroffer, and then you just shrug and you move on. And then in fantasy sports, there are owners that will sit there and say, okay, I need to improve my team. I'm bad at running back, or in baseball, I'm bad at I'm bad in the outfield, or I need better pitching or something like that, right? And they go, I have an overabundance of this. And they start looking at the rosters themselves proactively. Like, that's how I do it. And I, you look at the rosters and you go, oh, gosh, this team here, he's got a lot of this and I need it. And I've got a lot of this that he needs. And look at where he is in the standings. And this works out perfectly because it's a dynasty league. And I go and propose the trade. And sometimes I even overpay a little bit because I've selected the guy on their roster that I want. Like, I'm not waiting when I have an asset for somebody to come take the asset and offer me something. I go and say, I want that from that guy. These are my assets. This is what I'm willing to spend for it. And I go get it. That's what aggressive general managers go and do. That's what general managers on teams that consistently make the postseason and consistently turn around quickly and don't go through long, drawn-out rebuilds do. But the White Sox don't do that. I imagine Rick Hahn is a guy who puts everybody on the trade block and then waits for the phone call and then sits there after they give the offer and says, I'm going to call you back, walks into a room full of people who actually know a little bit about baseball, but not enough, obviously, because of the way this team has been run. And everybody has a big meeting and they decide whether or not Rick's going to go back and pick up the phone because he's just an attorney. That's all he is. And nothing against attorneys. You're an attorney yet. I get it. But he's not a baseball mind. 
So in the end, I don't think he makes the decision. I think he puts everybody on the trade block. People send in their offers. Rick goes into a room. They have a debate. Somebody says, let's do it. Or somebody says, ask for this instead. He goes back and makes the phone call. He probably signs the piece of paper. He probably makes the phone calls back and forth. But you are just looking at his trade block and trying to get something done. The Orioles clearly saw Dylan Cease on the trade block, made offers, and it went back and forth. You could see that in the reports that were going out in the last couple of hours. The Orioles were going after Dylan Cease. But because you have to guess what he needs and meet his price, it's less likely that that move happens, even though a lot of White Sox fans, including our guests that we just had on, thought that was a good idea. And I think that's one of the biggest issues. That's why a guy like Rick probably shouldn't be in charge of any kind of sports organization. He wouldn't be a bad facilitator, but he's not sitting there saying, you know what we need? We need a second baseman. Who has an extra second baseman out there? Such as such team does. What do they need? They need this. And he goes and makes a phone call and starts working it. I don't think that's that guy. I really don't. You look at how they pull off their trades and how, and how the rumors come out and the timeline of them. He's a trade block guy. That's all he'll ever be. <laughs> On the line with me right now, Dave Marin, the Sox nerd, the guy who puts all those great tidbits up on the scoreboard. And I'm going to tell you something, Dave, uh, sometimes that's all I have at these games now, (laughs) especially now when I have to learn new players because we're giving players away. How are you? Well, that's what I'm here for. I'm great, Chris. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. What do you got for me this week? Chris, Shohei Otani's recent one-hitter in the first game of a doubleheader and multi-homer game in the next got me to thinking about great two-way performances in White Sox history. I referred to some of these on the scoreboard the other day as White Sox Otani. One I did not flash, which I should have, occurred on May 1st, 1959, when future Hall of Famer Early Wynn homered in the eighth inning and went the distance in a one-to-nothing victory over Boston at Comiskey Park. As if we didn't know already, times sure have changed. Wynn was left alone in that one, even though he walked seven and only had two one, two, three innings. Two years earlier, on June 16, 1957, the White Sox Dixie Howell turned in one of the greatest two-way performances by a reliever in baseball history. Would you believe two homers in a stint where he threw three and two-thirds shutout innings and got the W in a win over Washington at Comiskey Park? Howell is the only Sox pitcher with a multi-homer game and the last of four relievers in big league history to accomplish the feat. The greatest hitting pitcher in Sox history was Gary Peters, who clubbed 15 home runs in his 11 seasons on the south side. So good was Peters that manager Eddie the Brat Stanky once started him in the sixth spot in the order. Anyway, Peters had a few Otanis, but his best may have been on August 11, 1963. On that Sunday afternoon at Comiskey Park, Peters launched a game-tying homer in the seventh as part of his complete game performance in the Sox 13-inning win over Detroit. You know who else was a great hitting pitcher for the White Sox? Terry Forster, whom David Letterman once called a big tub of goo. A left-handed reliever with a blazing fastball, Forster hit 526. That's 10 for 19 for the 1972 Sox. That is the highest average by any Sox player with at least 15 at-bats in a season. Forster was the last of the Sox great hitting pitchers. There have been moments, Matt Albers' double and run in New York, Mark Burley's homer in Milwaukee, and Dylan Cease's three-hit game in Cincinnati. But since Peters put down his bat, 
Sox pitchers were among the worst hitters in the pre-DH and interleague era. Of course, we will probably never see Sox pitchers hit again because of the universal DH, which could mean that the last hit ever by a White Sox pitcher came July 25th, 2021 in Milwaukee on a single by the recently departed Lance Lynn. My zingers, Sunday, Declan Cronin and Edgar Navarro became the first Sox pitchers to make their major league debuts in the same game since Eric Johnson and Daniel Webb did it on September 14, 2013. And prior to Sunday, the last Sox pitchers to debut in the same game at home were John Pawlowski and Adam Peterson on September 19, 1987. That's it, Chris. Probably more than you ever wanted to know about hitting pitchers, big tubs of goo, and simultaneous debuts. Yeah, I look forward to when Lance Lynn returns back to the ballpark for the first time and you're able to throw up that he is the last White Sox pitcher to ever record a hit for the team. It's crazy. He could be. That could, I mean, that's where we are at this point in history. Meanwhile, Ed has cracked the case. He's going to tell us why Jake Berger was actually traded. It turns out fireworks are super expensive these days, and Jerry just wants to make sure that they don't hit him out of the ballpark anymore. They traded one of the cheapest pieces they had on the team. Somebody explain that to Jerry. Maybe that'll get Rick fired. Go tell him that. He'll love that one. Go knock on his door and tell him. He doesn't know. He's asleep. He's taking a nap. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Socks in the basement. Heard everywhere podcasts can be found and always on socksinthebasement.com.